Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With the latest, it is indeed Riddle, the Money in the Bank edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and we are here just days before WWE's latest premium live event, Money in the Bank, airs on Saturday from Las Vegas. So the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, is here to break down every single match on the card with predictions for you leading into what was supposed to be the first of WWE's Summer of Stadium events, but is instead a somewhat normal premium live event in Las Vegas preceding SummerSlam Clash at the Castle and what we expect to be another crown jewel show. There is an absolute ton to talk about in the world of WWE on today's show. We had John Cena returning to the screen, making a special appearance on Raw Monday night from Laredo, Texas. We have a ton of stuff that happened, mostly on SmackDown, that had nothing to do whatsoever uh, with Money in the Bank. We will discuss that in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And of course, at the end of the show, we will give you that signature getting over ultimate preview of premium live events and pay-per-views that you all know and love so well. Now, you may have realized in my intro right there, I did not mention the name Vintage Chris Vanini. Unfortunately, Chris will not be here for today's show. He was otherwise uh, encumbered with plans. He will be joining us, do not fret, on Saturday for our WWE Money in the Bank pre-show, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Twitter Spaces. You can join by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, and he will also be with us for the WWE Money in the Bank Instant Analysis Podcast going down Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. Do not fret, though. I also have all of Chris's predictions, not just for the matches on the Money in the Bank card, but his pre-show expectation grade as well, so I will be able to share those with you when we get into the Ultimate Preview later in the show. Now, between this episode and that episode, Saturday night, the Money in the Bank Instant Analysis, do not forget we also will be back on Thursday with our latest AEW and NXT show. NXT will be the go-home show to Great American Bash, while AEW will be putting on its first show since Forbidden Door, as it kind of likely resets its, you know, creative and booking and gets ready to start building again for its next pay-per-view. So a ton to talk about this week in the world of professional wrestling. Of course, on this show, we are going to talk WWE. And by the way, isn't it convenient that we were planning to have that argument, Chris and I, on uh, national flags, and somehow he doesn't even show up for it. Ain't that something? Of course, I am just tweaking him a little bit because I'm sure he's listening wherever he is right now. But Chris will be back uh, Saturday. We will get into it and maybe we'll have that conversation next Tuesday on the podcast. Uh, A couple other reminders to get to before we fully begin the show. I already mentioned following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. But you need to remember that this show, this podcast, this audio that fills your professional wrestling Void in your ear holes. We are always. It's all about so please don't forget. Stop being marks for yourselves and 
Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, why you subscribe. We had an awesome streak of reading five-star reviews every single week here, but we haven't gotten a new one in a few days. So please make sure you leave that review on Apple Podcasts. We will read all new five-star reviews right here on the air. So, okay, folks, that is the intro. Just a quick reminder of how the show is going to go. We're going to start with the main event, move on to the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then we will hit the WWE Money in the Bank Ultimate Preview at the end of the show. If you happen to be listening to us towards the end of the week, Friday, Saturday, and you just want to hear the Ultimate Preview, check out our episode description. We will have a timestamp, as we always do for every segment on the show. That way you can just jump to that segment and you can kind of skip everything else and get yourself prepared for Money in the Bank. And one other uh, cautionary note, as always, you know, we want you guys to be able to listen to the show throughout the week. So of course we do tape prior to the go home SmackDown, which of course is happening on Friday. As of right now, it does not seem like anything is going to be added to this card outside of the matches that have already been booked with the lone exception being the final qualifier for the men's Money in the Bank. But Chris and I, we spoke about it. We both agreed our predicted winner comes from the group of people that is already qualified. So we're not particularly concerned about who's going to be added to that match. We will, though, give our final predictions and our final review of the card again on on Saturday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, live on Twitter Spaces, our WWE Money in the Bank pre-show. You guys can join in the conversation, ask questions, uh, issue comments on the show. We open up the mics. It's a great way for us to interact with you, and we absolutely love doing those shows. Okay, enough promotion. Let's get into the show, and we will begin this episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast as we begin all WWE episodes by sliding into the main event. And clearly, the main event this week was John Cena returning to WWE, making an appearance on Raw to celebrate his 20th anniversary with the company. Uh, Raw opened with a strange canned standing ovation by wrestlers and staff backstage, kind of like coming out of the loading dock area right into the arena. Uh, He played with the Street Profits a little bit backstage. Dolph Ziggler reluctantly gave him a hug because of their history. I thought that was pretty funny. The highlight was Becky Lynch sitting on a road case, the only one depressed, barely clapping, because she's, of course, in the downward spiral and doesn't give a shit about John Cena. And by the way, don't forget, last time he was probably on Raw, she told him, this is my show and not yours. So continuity, just Becky character acting, typical great stuff. I literally cackled the way she was sitting there slumped over with the big ass glasses on. It was really funny. Uh, They also did video messages later in the show from current and former talent. And shockingly, I think to many people, myself included, Brian Danielson as Daniel Bryan, Paul White as The Big Show, and Chris Jericho as Chris Jericho, all of AEW submitted videos and were part of it, clearly under their WWE names. So I don't know how this transpired. If WWE asked them individually, they got permission from AEW. Um, If AEW or Discovery Warner, one of them, just granted the permission, not exactly sure what happened there, but very cool that all three of them were able to be part of that video package. I will say, though, someone was missing by their absence. 
conspicuous by their absence. No, not John Moxley. No, not Cesaro. Mark Henry. I wanted Mark Henry in the salmon jacket, taping a video message from his home. I would have lost my shit for that. I knew he wouldn't get CM Punk or Moxley or some of those guys, but Mark would have been absolutely incredible. So slightly disappointed in you, Mark. I wish that they had reached out or I wish that you had gone ahead and done it if they did. Uh, But, you know, kudos to AEW or whoever for making that happen. And it certainly, you could tell, meant a lot to John Cena to see all those people there, um, even on video, giving him those messages. You could say that the Forbidden Door was propped open, you know, and they didn't realize it just for a couple days longer uh, than originally planned. Now, after all that was kind of over, and that was stuff that happened throughout the show, uh, Cena backstage fully interacted in a segment with the Street Profits, and then he did one with Ezekiel, where Cena bought into the entire gimmick. He told Zeke, just be who you really are when he asked for advice, which led Zeke to like pause for a moment before smiling and walking off. So clearly they played into it, and this is one of only a couple times where they've shown Zeke recognize that he is, of course, a split personality, and it's not exactly what he claims it to be with his gaslighting. So I appreciated that they use Cena in that way. I thought it worked. And the best part of the backstage interactions, clearly, uh, I think people agree, was when Theory interrupted the segment with Zeke. He got right in Cena's face, talked a ton of shit to him, and he even aggressively cut Cena off when he tried to like retort. Theory called him a grown-ass man wearing jorts, and then he went to take a selfie to mock him, and Cena just walked off before he could take the picture. It was probably the singular best moment for Theory on the main roster to this point. I don't know if they were attempting to do a ruthless aggression kind of spinoff, but that's what it was. Of course, there wasn't a slap, there wasn't a match, so it was a poor man's version of it. But nevertheless, it had a similar effect. I kind of would have liked to have seen them interact in front of the fans, in the ring, on the ramp. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Later in the show, Rollins found Cena and sang Cena's theme song, but used his laugh to sing it. He said they're a lot alike, but pointed out that Cena's Money in the Bank cash-in failed, while Rollins's, of course, was the greatest of all time. MVP with Omas walked up, saying that he was a visionary too, and his vision was Omas winning the briefcase. Cena just stared at Omas in awe. He kind of put him over in that way. Then he patted Rollins on the back, basically was like, good luck, bro, and left. So I know Chris would point this out if he was here, but this is the proper way to utilize a huge star making a one-off appearance or a rare appearance on WWE TV. You don't just have to have them come out like for their singular segment, do their thing, and then leave. You want them to interact with different people throughout the show backstage for numerous different segments, numerous mini rubs, if you want to call it that way. We saw Cena five different times in three hours, which is far more than we would see with The Rock or Brock Lesnar or Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, Goldberg. Usually those guys show up. It's one segment, maybe two, if there's like an extenuating reason to do a second one. And that's it. We got John Cena five times on that show. So if you tuned in for Cena, yeah, his moment came at the 10 o'clock hour. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But you saw him every single hour during the broadcast. And every time you saw him, it was something that you could at least to some degree, sink your teeth into and enjoy. Now, as far as that 10 p.m. Uh, sharp segment, which was really John Cena's true celebration, it started 
as things tend to do these days with Vince McMahon entering, superstars lined the ramp for Cena's introduction. And luckily, even though Vince was out there and he did do the introduction because of course, uh, they all left once Cena started talking and that was a huge positive. Cena got a massive pop and a champ. He said, the night is not about him, but the fans who have let him be himself while cheering for him and telling him he sucks when appropriate. He said it was the right moment for him to say thank you. The fans loudly chanted thank you Cena right back at him. Cena said WWE prepared him for anything in his entire life and the fans made him a better person, a better professional and a better husband. Then he put over the fans even stronger and said he doesn't know when he's gonna be back in the ring next. So fans start chanting one more time and Cena immediately cuts them off. He goes, I promise it's not just gonna be one more time. So he's insinuating, hey, look, I'm still here and I'm still gonna be wrestling numerous times in the future. Cena told fans to always cheer loud and boo loud when they get the opportunity. He got one more cheap pop and he did his catchphrases. And then he celebrated with fans. He took his shirt off, threw it into the crowd, and then he gave his hat to someone in the crowd as well. Quick shout out to whoever designed the hat because it is the old school Los Angeles Raiders black and white script snapback. But instead of that, it says hustle, loyalty, respect. Now, if it didn't say hustle, loyalty, respect, I would 1000% own it. But I don't know if I can justify purchasing that hat and wearing a John Cena hat out in public. It's not an embarrassment factor. It's just, as an adult male, it doesn't really feel right. And if I really want that style hat, I'm kind of thinking maybe I should just go find one of the old LA Raiders hats and and buy that instead. But it is sick. I will consider buying it. Maybe by the time Black Friday comes in November, if that shit's on sale on WWE Shop, maybe I'll add it to my cart and I'll get it and wear it occasionally. But it's a great hat. And if you are into John Cena, Um, You're going to get a lot of props if you buy that hat. So I highly, highly suggest it. Uh, Anyway, the entire segment, exceptional stuff from Cena. It was one of those moments that it just hit home. Like, especially for those of us that are of a certain age at this point. Not washed yet, but on the way to being washed is the best way I can put it. Cena, he had the crowd in the palm of his hands. uh, And Laredo, Texas, they were pretty great. You got to give them props as well for the call and response, the chanting, just the the volume that they kept the entire show, by the way, not just during the Cena segment, but particularly during the Cena segment, they were fantastic. There's really not much more analysis to do, right? It was, it was great to hear him promise that he's far from done in the ring. I presume Cena in theory happens at SummerSlam, but if not, given that's only a few weeks away and Cena's probably not gonna be on TV for that, maybe they ramp this up for WrestleMania. You know, I'm not exactly sure what the plan is with these two, but... Clearly, they will be having a match. The question is, is it four weeks from now or is it, you know, however many months that is, six months, seven months uh, from this time? Probably more like nine months now that I think about it. The only note I had was when Cena was celebrating and he threw the hat and the shirt into the crowd and he walked his way up the ramp. In that moment, it would have been great for Theory to attack him. Whether Theory stood tall or Cena stood tall at the end, it probably wouldn't have mattered. But it would have been nice to have that attack that physicality and truly set up a reason for them to have that match. But maybe the fact that they didn't do that, they're not going to have it immediately. And maybe will be WrestleMania instead of SummerSlam. But one way or another, I really do want that to happen. I think it would get Theory over in a major way, even if he lost. And it just makes a lot of sense to do Theory Cena 
but I, I did want a little bit more from them on the show. I thought there would be a second segment. I thought Theory might interrupt his speech or attack him on the ramp, and it just kind of never happened. So that was the only note on what was otherwise a fantastic appearance for John Cena. And that is really the entire main event today. Uh, no Roman Reigns, no Brock Lesnar on Raw or SmackDown. And we're leading into a premium live event, which means a lot of stuff is going to be contained in our ultimate preview. I, I guess I can point out that Roman Reigns, I think, has now not been on Raw. The only world champion in the company has not been on Raw, I think, for two months. It may even be longer than that. And Lesnar is not, as of this moment, best I can tell, advertised for the go-home SmackDown for Money in the Bank, nor is Reigns. So I'm expecting them to both miss that show. So consecutive weeks for both of them not being on TV after starting a storyline. Now, I do expect Lesnar and Reigns to, of course, be on TV more frequently coming out of Money in the Bank leading into SummerSlam. But are they going to be on next week? I have no idea at this point. I don't exactly know what WWE is going to do. Do they need a significant build to Reigns Lesnar for the main event of that show? The truth is they don't because as I've laid out previously, we've seen it so many times. Uh, I will note that WWE on SmackDown Friday, I don't have the exact terminology in front of me, but commentary said something along the lines of indicating that this is it, like that this is going to be the match between them that ends the feud. Again, they didn't say last time ever. They didn't say um, last laugh like they did with Madcap Moss and uh, Happy Corbin. Of course, they wouldn't use that terminology, but it was kind of communicated by, it was Pat McAfee or Michael Cole, I forget who it was, that this may well be the last time they fight. Now, of course, we don't believe that, nor should we ever believe that at this point. But if that's true, and if they actually lean into that and pay it off, then certainly my anger over the booking and my disappointment over the booking will be lessened uh, with time. But we can't touch that. We can't trust that. uh, We can't buy into it or believe it at this time. Because look, every time we think it's the last time they're going to have fought Suddenly, there's another match with them on the schedule. And of course, that one will be coming uh, just over a month from now at SummerSlam. So that's the main event. Let's move out of it and slide into our second segment, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now we're going to go segment by segment in a moment, but I did want to quickly note that The promotion for Raw on Monday night was very strange. So they promoted Cena, of course, and and that was the big hook for the entire show. But the only match that was scheduled and announced ahead of time got pulled. I presume for personal reasons involving Kevin Owens. Not going to speculate, of course, about what they are. But he was not at the show. He tweeted that he wasn't at the show. And whether it was an illness or family thing or whatever the case... He had that scheduled match with Ezekiel. It didn't happen. And WWE simply said it's been postponed to a later date. What's interesting, though, is that that match was originally just a one-on-one match. And then I believe at some point earlier Monday, it was announced as a Money in the Bank qualifier. So they added the stipulation that we projected last week that they might only to cancel the match. What was even more confusing than that, though, was there were two different dual-branded matches on the show. 
last chance qualifiers for the men and women. We'll get into the terminology of that in a moment. But they never announced that Raw would have SmackDown superstars on the show. That's a selling point for your viewing audience. They had previously announced that this coming Friday on SmackDown, there would be all the Raw superstars in the Money in the Bank matches would be on it for a go-home show. So if you're going to go ahead and announce that for SmackDown, why the hell wouldn't you announce that for Raw, even if it's something that developed late because you needed to replace the Ezekiel KO match with the men's qualifiers? So you said, hey, what the hell, let's just do two last chance qualifiers with all the talent. Even if that was a change made Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, announce it, promote it. You want people to watch your show. And then on top of that, there was an interview with Cody Rhodes that they did in the third hour of the show. I didn't know they were going to do it at all. They never announced Cody was going to be there. I mean, I know he wasn't there physically, but like like in Laredo, Texas, but you could say, hey, we have an interview with Cody Rhodes scheduled for the show. You promote that. Cody is one of your top draws right now. They Not only did they not promote it ahead of the show, they didn't announce it during the show until 10.30 p.m. when they're like, hey, coming up next is an interview with Cody Rhodes. So I just have no clue what the marketing and promotional team is doing right now for Raw. But to have all of those selling points to pop, I mean, I know they're going to pop a big rating anyway with John Cena, but to pop an even bigger rating, hey, not only do we have John Cena, we have a bunch of your favorite SmackDown stars, and Cody Rhodes is going to have a taped interview on the show. You're going to hear from him for the first time since the Seth Rollins attack. Why would you not promote those things? I just don't understand. That is bad business by WWE. Very, very stupid. All right. Let's get into what the segment is actually about, which is the good, the bad, and the ugly. I guess I can give that a bad from a promotional standpoint. So there you go. That's your first bad of the week for WWE. Let's get into things that actually happen on television. We'll talk about that Cody Rhodes interview segment. He was interviewed while rehabbing in Atlanta. He said he was riding high and had a lot of momentum ahead of Money in the Bank, but he's going to respect the nine-month rehab timeframe given to him by doctors. Then he put over everyone actually in the Money in the Bank match, including Seth Rollins, who he said has the most memorable cash in ever. Cody suggested history could repeat itself and said he would be the first to congratulate Rollins if he regained the title. Now, I said this last week, but it feels like they are beating us over the head with the idea of Rollins winning Money in the Bank and repeating history. Maybe he wins it, and Cody somehow prevents a cash-in. Maybe Cody shockingly shows up during Money in the Bank and prevents Rollins from winning it. Obviously, he can't compete, but theoretically, he could throw the guy into the steel steps or pull his leg down off the ladder if they wanted to do something like that. That's very heelish, though. I don't know that that would be a good idea. Maybe Rollins wins it and fails with his cash-in. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen, and I'll discuss later in the show, in the Ultimate Preview, the possibility of Rollins winning. But it was nice to see Cody here, and it was a good short interview segment. I just wish they had actually promoted it, as I said a moment ago. So over on SmackDown, we had an Intercontinental Championship rematch, Gunther against Ricochet. Gunther got a second new theme. This one had a chorus. It was pretty badass, I have to say. It's better than the interim theme that he had, but obviously not as good as Symphony Number no. 9, which is just not going to be matched. Uh, Ricochet exploded at the bell, but Gunther quickly cut him down. Rick hit two pump knees, but got turned inside out with a lariat. Gunther then murdered him in the corner, hit a German suplex and a shotgun dropkick before hitting the huge powerbomb for the win in three minutes. 
This was obviously done to make Gunther look good, but it's idiotic to have these two guys go 10 to 12 minutes in their first match only to immediately run back a rematch one week later and have it be three minutes long. Why would you not have Ricochet effort to get the rematch and he does it in the go-home show after he gets a week and they go 15 minutes? You want them to go longer because Ricochet you know, is really going after him. He's not going to let this chance slip by. Or have it at least go seven, eight, nine minutes and allow Ricochet to look good because as we saw Monday night, WWE wants Ricochet to look good. There's no harm in allowing both people to benefit even if you want Gunther to look super strong. So I have to give them a bad due to the match time, but it's just disappointing to me because their first match was so good and they could have done a really good rematch and they just chose to not do it and take a guy in Ricochet who's like the number two or three male babyface on SmackDown right now. That is how thin their roster is. And they just let Gunther kill him after having a really good match the first time. That is super disappointing. We'll stick with SmackDown and we'll stick with another scheduled rematch, which was New Day against Jinder Mahal and Shanky. New Day said before the match that they beat these guys clean as soap last week and no one wants to see a rematch because New Day doesn't do endless rematches because that doesn't make sense. I loved that they addressed that tongue-in-cheek. They got the crowd chanting for Shanky to dance and Xavier Woods played the trombone for him. Jinder got really mad. Shanky shoved him and then they danced together. Suddenly, a loud horn sounded and the Viking Raiders returned in all black to attack New Day from behind. They hit Kofi Kingston with a huge double choke slam and then Ivar took Woods out with the world's strongest slam from the middle rope. Later backstage, they said they've been overlooked for far too long and far too many times and no one is safe from them. I have to say, this was extremely well done. They totally worked me first by announcing the rematch. Then they kind of worked me again with the dancing. The tongue-in-cheek stuff completely worked. Then they swerved us by having the Viking Raiders not only return in the segment, but having them return as heels after their vignettes showed all the babyface corny shit they had been doing over the last couple of years. Was this spectacular? No. But you know what? It was actually one of the better WWE returns in quite a while. And this is the closest that the Raiders have been to their old War Machine gimmick they had in New Japan, the War Raiders gimmick they had originally when they first joined NXT. This wasn't just good. It was actually pretty great. That was a good one, yeah. And I think everyone involved, New Day and Viking Raiders and Creative specifically, deserves a lot of credit for that. It was super fun and a really surprising moment on SmackDown. Moving over to Raw, Finn Balor and Damian Priest stopped the Mysterios backstage saying they remembered it's not just Cena's 20th anniversary, but Ray's is coming up too. They said Judgment Day is about to take over and their doors are open in case anyone like Dominic wanted to get steered down the right path for a change. They called Ray a bad father and he challenged them to a tag team match next week. This is what I always say. Mid-card and undercard booking, it's really not that hard. Just come up with an idea and execute it. And after explicably being off TV for a couple of weeks, Judgment Day came back and they started a simple storyline that makes complete sense. The Mysterios are now away from Veer Mahan 
And Judgment Day now has a pair of people that they can beat to grow stronger and someone in Dominic who they can perhaps bring into the fold. The whole mantra of the group is stepping away from people who are trying to hold them down and put them in a box. And that is very much what Ray is doing to Dominic or has done to Dominic during his WWE career to this point. Not necessarily holding him down, but making him fit into the Mysterio family mold. I would love the development of Dominic moving away from Ray and joining Judgment Day. It would be really positive. The father-son thing, it's just trite. It's not really working anymore. It's really overdone at this point. And WWE, if it had its druthers, this is a storyline that could play out all the way through Survivor Series if they wanted. You could have a Judgment Day team and a Rey Mysterio-led team. You could throw AJ Styles in there and a couple other people along the way that Judgment Day gets on the wrong side of. And Rey's team wins and he gets his son back. And it's a really nice story. So look, I don't know that they're going to go that far. But in the moment, what we got on Raw, I very much liked it. And this was definitely another good. Also on Raw, The Miz was interviewed by Kevin Patrick in the ring. He was asked about a social media um, photo of Logan Paul wrestling. Miz claimed that he set up the training session for Logan and they would team again at SummerSlam. Then footage was shown of Miz turning on Paul at WrestleMania. Miz put himself over as the biggest full-time star in WWE and said he told Logan that was a teachable lesson and that they would soon become the undisputed tag team champions. Miz called AJ Styles a disappointment, who was on a downward spiral, and they did the tiny balls gimmick uh, with the crowd. Styles came out, he just straight up punched Miz in the face, so we got a match. Styles versus Miz. This started kind of rough. Styles got thrown into the ring post and then the barricade. Miz hit a basement DDT for a near fall. They traded signatures before Miz hit a really cool draping code breaker on the middle rope. Styles then hit a Pele kick and a brain buster, but as he was going for a phenomenal forearm, Miz ducked out of the ring and took a purposeful countout loss after 13 minutes. So I enjoyed the opening to this because we actually had someone in the ring for an interview get interviewed. Looking at you, Tony Schiavone. Now, it also broke up the monotony of the Miz TV segments and regular WWE promos, which we get so frequently, especially the Miz TV segments. Ending a match, though, with a countout because a guy quits, it is incredibly stupid and such an eye roll at this point. And somehow, WWE's strange fascination with countouts over the last couple of months, it just keeps continuing. Now, I thought originally they were setting up Miz versus Logan Paul at SummerSlam. That's what we expected all the way back at WrestleMania. But now, looking at how this is kind of transpiring, I'm thinking they're actually going to do AJ Styles and Logan Paul against Miz and Champa. It would explain why Champa is with Miz and why he's feuding with Styles. Because Logan Paul, if he shows up as himself, he's mostly going to get booed, as we've seen in the past. Aligning him with Styles allows him to get the babyface rub. So that's what I believe they're doing. The other you know, concept, of course, we'll talk about it in a moment, is Pat McAfee and Happy Corbin. They're probably going to have a singles match. So you're already going to have a celebrity in a singles match to do it twice. Lower quality wrestling. I mean, although, look, Pat McAfee's great. I'm not saying he's a bad wrestler. But it's not, you know, people who are wrestling, you know, every week on tours and on Raw and SmackDown. You know, there, there's a different level, of course, that McAfee is compared to the people who do it professionally all the time. Regardless, I think to do two matches like that on one SummerSlam card 
would probably be stretching it. So to do a tag team match here, again, I don't know that they're going to do it, but that is what I'm projecting right now. I think that's a really smart idea. So I'm going to go ahead and give a good for this because it wasn't bad, but the count out, it's so frustrating. Just let Styles beat him. What is the harm if AJ Styles beats The Miz? Like, like what is the bad thing that's going to happen coming out of that? Nothing. Miz can make an excuse. You move on. You do it again if you need to. Uh, over on SmackDown, Sonya Deville walked into Adam Pierce's office saying she was embarrassed for him. She said people are saying he's doing a terrible job with the women's division, and she's been back on SmackDown for weeks without a single match. Sonya was angry about others getting opportunities and said he was taking it out on her that his in-ring career was a failure. Let's point out now, Adam Pierce's in-ring career, far more successful than Sonya Deville to this point. Pierce put her in a handicap match as punishment with the women that she mentioned during the promo. So we ended up getting Deville versus Raquel Rodriguez and Lacey Evans in a handicap match, which really kind of seemed like overkill punishment for Deville. Just put her with Rodriguez one-on-one, right? Uh, Sonya walked out to the ring though with Zia Lee and Shayna Baszler. They looked like badasses. Baszler distracted Rodriguez as Deville hit a running knee on Evans for a near fall. Raquel got a hot tag with Snake Eyes, but Baszler distracted as she went for the Texana bomb. Lacey tagged in blind and Raquel did an Irish whip as she hit the women's right for the win in four minutes. The heels attacked, Rodriguez body slammed Zaya while Sonya was on her back with the faces standing tall. This was short, but a lot happened in a really short period of time. And because it was a handicap match without a super strong person having the handicap, so for example, Bobby Lashley, right? The fact that it was four minutes didn't bother me at all. That person should lose rather easily two-on-one. I just didn't understand the point of it, given there was no qualifier at stake and they could have simply done DeVille against Raquel Rodriguez and let Raquel beat her in four minutes and look very strong. I don't like the short matches. I'm just saying if you're going to do it, why not put an individual like Raquel over rather than her and Lacey? But it was good enough. And I also thought it was interesting how they pushed Sonya from Raw to SmackDown and acted as if we already knew that. It was kind of like gaslighting us as an audience. Be like, how could you not know that she was already on SmackDown? I could be wrong, but to me, that was a brand new development. I like that they at least kind of explained it, that it's something that's happening backstage, even though I don't like that people are now getting shifted back and forth between the brands without us being told about it. Now, outside of the SmackDown superstars on Raw this past Monday, and of course they're gonna do it again for the go-home, there still hasn't really been that much crossover when there has been, it's mostly been reasonable. Uh, the Usos showing up because they're the undisputed champions or because they were feuding with Riddle and Orton. You weren't getting a lot of crossover, but if you're gonna meet, move people back and forth, they need to explain why as long as you are still doing a brand split and presumably in November or October or whenever the hell it is, presumably gonna do another draft as well. So over on SmackDown, Pat McAfee jumped on the announce table with a mic to call out bumass Corbin, which he's now calling him. Uh, McAfee said he loves his life so much and he feels the most alive when he's in front of WWE fans. He did The Rock's millions and millions call and response. He called Corbin an insufferable, arrogant douchebag and then issued a SummerSlam challenge. Pat is just so effing good on the mic. Like, it's kind of amazing. This guy spent eight years in the NFL as an all-pro, Pro Bowl punter when he was made for wrestling. He was made for WWE. This was obviously not just good, but great. And I'm excited for this match too, because we've seen what McAfee can do when he has a real opponent. Like when he fought Adam Cole, unlike at WrestleMania, when he was shoehorned into an angle because they wanted to get Vince McMahon there and they wanted to get Stone Cold Steve Austin there. 
Now, this could end up being a sneaky banger on SummerSlam, especially because he and Corbin have a legitimate longtime friendship. So they're going to train together. I'm presuming that's one of the reasons why Corbin's been off TV because he's going to be training with Pat. He's probably not on tour. He's probably not doing other things. So they're going to get really ready and they're going to script out this match. And I think it's going to be awesome. Who wins? I don't know. We'll talk about it a month from now when we do our SummerSlam Ultimate Preview, but I am pumped up for it. And lastly here, before we move on, Max Dupree was shown backstage speaking to someone in the locker room. When SmackDown returned from commercial, his music was hit again, but no one came out to the ring. Dupree instead was close talking Pierce, complaining that they didn't get their locker room writer, all the stuff that they demanded to be appropriate in the locker room for for them to make an appearance. Again, just as I said last week, it's beginning to wear thin on me. But Dupree is such a strong talker that I'm keeping it in the good category. They need to deliver though when he finally debuts these models. Again, if it's Mansoor and Mace, it's gonna be really disappointing. If it's Pretty Deadly from NXT or some other people that we're not really thinking about, then maybe it can hit a home run. But they gotta deliver on this. It can't just be a couple low carters and us saying, oh, okay, great. That's the payoff for all these weeks of making us wait. That would not be good enough. Now, that is everything from SmackDown and Raw that went down and has pretty much nothing to do with the WWE Money in the Bank premium live event coming up this Saturday from Las Vegas, which means it is now time for us on this show to move into our WWE Money in the Bank ultimate preview, a reminder of what this is going to be like. We are going to break down every single match on the card. I say we, I'm the only one on the show, but we are going to break down every single match on this card and provide a prediction At the end, we're also going to discuss what happened on SmackDown and Raw leading into the booking of these matches before, of course, we give that ultimate prediction. And then at the very end of this ultimate preview, we will give our pre-show expectation grades uh, for this premium live event. And uh, again, I I did reach out to uh, Chris Vanini and he did send me all of his predictions and his pre-show expectation grade. So I will be able to relate those to you as we go through this, but if I remember correctly, I think him and I agree on every single match. So unfortunately, his predictions may not give a secondary take to what I'm about to say. Nevertheless, let's get it going. We will start with the United States Championship being put on the line, Theory defending against Bobby Lashley. On Raw Monday night, Lashley and Alpha Academy had a handicap match, a two-on-one, of course, Alpha Academy having the advantage. Theory was the special guest enforcer. Lashley literally bumped meat with Otis at the bell. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. He basically then got triple teamed outside and consistently double teamed inside. Lashley picked Otis off the ropes on his shoulders for a really big falling slam. People were super impressed by it in the crowd. Then he caught Chad Gable flying for the hurt lock and the submission win. All three guys beat him down after the bell, but Lashley came to during the selfie attempt by Theory. He had a flatliner on Otis and speared Gable before Theory ducked out of the ring. This whole thing was fine. Seeing how it played out, it made even less sense that they went for the DQ finish last week. It would track much better for him to beat both of them individually, but then struggle more against them as a pair. Instead, he got the DQ against Otis and then just beat them two-on-one this week. It's a minor gripe but it's one of those small things that I wish they would do better. Now, as far as the prediction for the match, this is a little difficult in some ways because it should be an obvious championship win for Bobby Lashley. 
They need to reestablish the United States Championship on Raw as a maybe not main event level title, but something for upper mid-carders. And Theory, since being champion, he's really been more annoying than anything else. He had the feud with Mustafa Ali that was a start and stop. It just didn't really go anywhere. And Ali, we haven't seen him since really. I think we saw him one time. In a, uh, he took a match to champion. I think he lost it. So that kind of didn't really work. And now he's going up against the guy in Bobby Lashley, who's like one of WWE's most pushed guys right now. He's one of considered one of the strongest baby faces in the entire company. Now, of course, you can do a DQ, you can do another count out, you can figure something out to have the title not change hands here. But going into the show, especially if you're going to be doing Theory and Cena at SummerSlam, that should not be a title match, of course, it would make all the sense in the world for Lashley to take the United States Championship off Theory ahead of that match with Cena. However, if you are going to delay that match with Cena, maybe until WrestleMania, then Theory remaining champion is probably the better move because you wouldn't want to take the title off of him so quickly. You'd really want to establish him and build up his profile for Cena. I'm not saying you would have to have the title the entire nine months until WrestleMania, but you'd want him to have it for another two or three months. I'm still going to go with the idea that Theory Cena is happening at SummerSlam And even beyond that, the WWE, given the fact that maybe there's not plans right now to split the undisputed championships that Roman Reigns is carrying, they want to get a more prominent champion for the men on Raw, and that is certainly Lashley over Theory. Therefore, yes, I'm going to predict a championship change here, Lashley winning the title off Theory, and Chris agrees as well. He also is predicting Lashley. Uh, We'll stick with Raw. We'll move to the Raw Women's Championship, Bianca Belair defending against Carmella. On Raw, there was a face-to-face. Belair said no one respects Mella because she's insecure and doesn't respect herself. The last thing I'd probably call Mella is insecure. Uh, A woman who's walking out calling herself the most beautiful woman in WWE. I mean, maybe you could say she's doing that because of insecurity, but I mean, she's pretty. So, you know, it just didn't really track for me. Uh, Belair then dared Mella to come out. So Mella did say that she's beauty and brains. She stormed past Belair in the ring, ran down her resume, and then promised to take the respect she deserves and the title off of Belair at Money in the Bank. She then tried to blindside Belair, but failed. And the segment overall, it was fine until the end, which was just kind of sloppy. It did not amp up excitement for me for the match. And I'm not really sure anything could have. Remember, the planned match was Belair against Rhea Ripley, which would have been a banger. It probably could have been like a co-main event on the show. You're talking about a future match that we're probably going to have at WrestleMania one day pretty soon. Instead, it's Mella coming in for the substitute role, and we've seen it now three times against Belair. We know Belair is going to win. I don't think it's going to be a good match. I don't think it's going to be a long match. I'm not saying it's going to be bad necessarily, but I have no expectations for this whatsoever, and it seems like the single most obvious pick of the entire card, which is Belair retaining her championship, and of course, Chris agrees with that as well. Next, we can break down the SmackDown Women's Championship match between Ronda Rousey and Natalya on SmackDown. Rousey's music hit, and suddenly Natalya walked in, dressed as Rousey, raccoon makeup, you know, the leather jacket, the whole shebang, while pushing a stroller. I'm not shitting you. I legitimately laughed out loud when I saw Natty walking down the ramp. She talked a bunch of shit, making fun of Rousey's catchphrases and for being a new mom. Rousey entered afterwards saying that 
Natalia was the saddest woman on the planet. Rhonda went after Natty's plastic surgery and said she doesn't deserve the title just because she decided to give up on having kids and instead decided to wrestle for a decade straight. Rousey said Natalia has no talent and charisma, and despite her work ethic, the closest she can come to being in the main event or being a main eventer is dressing like Rousey. Rousey then stole her leather jacket back, and Natalia just brutalized her with the stroller that she brought into the ring. Now, this continued a feud that there's been a lot of low blows dealt between both of them on Twitter over the last couple of weeks. And they're legitimately friends in real life, so apparently it's things that they feel like they can say to each other. It's a way better feud and far more interesting than I initially expected it to be. So I do give credit to both of them for raising the rent. And as I said, this segment, like the way it started was funny. The promos, I thought both ways, Rousey, of course, not as good as Natalia, but they were pretty good. And I thought the segment top to bottom was pretty fantastic. My only problem with it was this. Rousey was being an asshole the entire time. And out of context, she came off like a heel. And we all know she's better as a heel, which is why this segment came off so well, except she's a baby face and they want her to smile and get cheered. So maybe this is the beginning of a heel turn. We may soon be seeing the beginnings of a Becky Lynch face turn. And if they do those slowly and simultaneously, that of course is going to make a lot of sense for that match to happen at WrestleMania. But as of now, I did enjoy what we got Friday night on SmackDown and it did get me more excited for the match. Of course, what it did not do was change my prediction for the match because just like with Belair and Mella, there's really no way that Rousey drops the title to Natalia. Now you could say, what about the idea of someone winning the women's money in the bank and cashing in that night on Belair or Rousey? Based on who's in the match, based on two baby faces being champions, I do not right now expect that to happen. Uh, but we will go ahead and talk about the women's money in the bank a little bit later. I probably should have done it in retrospect before these championship matches, given that they would have the opportunity to cash in and we could have discussed those two individually. But again, because I don't expect it to happen this night, then you know I'm totally fine, of course, with talking about it a little bit later, which we will do momentarily. Now, before we get into the two briefcase matches, let's talk about the final championship match on the card, the undisputed tag team championships on the line, the Usos defending against the Street Profits. The Profits hyped up a bunch of people backstage on SmackDown. They ran into Los Lotharios, Drew Gulak, and Madcap Moss. Angelo Dawkins told a dad joke with Moss and Montez Ford completely no-selling it. We just need more of that backstage stuff. I thought that was pretty fun. On Raw, Cena joined the Profits for a backstage segment, as I mentioned earlier. They asked for advice about overcoming the bloodline. Cena pointed out they've won all of the tag team titles you can win in WWE and shouldn't be lacking any confidence. Then they chanted, never give up and we want the smoke. It was corny as hell. I really expected something better with Cena and them, but you know it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And then we got another singles match, Jey Uso against Montez Ford. The winner, they said, got to pick a stipulation for Money in the Bank. Ford had a nice run with a standing moonsault before eating a pop-up neckbreaker for a near fall. Ford then came back with a blockbuster for another near fall. Dawkins pounced Jimmy after he distracted uh, on the ring apron. Jay took Dawkins out with a tope suicida before Ford followed with another tope suicida. Montez then rolled him into the ring and hit a sky high frog splash for the clean one, two, three. This was a super fun match. And as I said a couple weeks ago, if you're going to beat Jay Uso, have Montez Ford do it so he can get elevated. 
The Dawkins win just feels more and more ridiculous given both Profits have now beaten Jay Uso. Again, Jimmy is the one who should be taking the singles losses. They spent a year building up Jay Uso and now he's just losing singles matches. It's really ridiculous. But that I guess that's relatively minor as a gripe. I just wish they thought about that type of stuff. As far as for a prediction for the match, look, I'd love the Usos to lose the titles because again, with Reigns not on the show holding the Undisputed Championships, there's a lack of titles now in the company that was reduced even more by merging the tag team championships as well. I don't exactly know what the plan is going to be for the world titles, for the tag team titles. Are they going to maybe do this all the way until Survivor Series and maybe allow Raw superstars to compete for the Raw sets of titles and maybe win them and split them up? Is a money in the bank cash in for the world title going to result in those being split? I don't exactly know what they're going to do. Are they going to force them to relinquish half the championships at some point? I don't know, but until something like that happens, I don't really see the Usos or Reigns losing their unified undisputed titles, whatever you want to call them. So I would love to predict the profits here, but I just can't. I don't think it makes sense based on the stories that they're telling. Therefore, I have the Usos retaining the championship. And Chris has the exact same thing, the Usos retaining the title. So that's uh, four championship matches on the show, three title retentions with the only change being the United States Championship. That, of course, brings us to the two Money in the Bank ladder matches. And before I go into great depth about each match individually in terms of what happened on SmackDown and Raw leading into them, the competitors in the matches, potential winners, all that type of stuff, I've really tried hard throughout the month leading into this show to not go on my diatribe about how money in the bank needs to be used, how it should not be used, so on and so forth. Because I do, I've done that every single year and I've, I, I talk about it all the time. But I do want to reiterate it briefly here before we get into these two matches. The reason why money in the bank was such a good invention and such a good idea from WWE is because it added a surprise element and unpredictability to all of the shows. Not just Money in the Bank itself and WrestleMania at the time when it, when it started, but Raws, SmackDowns, future pay-per-views, and really just every event. The threat of the cash-in, someone running down and, and maybe not going through with it, or taunting people with the briefcase, actually cashing in on a random Raw and them crowning a new world champion, not announcing it beforehand, all of those moments are memorable. Like think about what we remember the most when it comes to Money in the Bank. The two that probably stand out most, at least to me, are of course, Seth Rollins cashing in at WrestleMania 31 in the Brock Lesnar-Roman Reigns match to win the championship, the heist of the century. And the other was Dolph Ziggler cashing in, I think it was on a Raw and winning the world championship and just getting an absolute crazy response from the crowd. But if you look at the way WWE has treated Money in the Bank, I would say since maybe 2016, I think is when it started with Dean Ambrose when he won it, when he won it, I should say. They haven't really abided by that mantra, really, that should have existed around the briefcase. There really should be rules where, okay, occasionally, if you want to have someone cash in later on the same pay-per-view, that's fine. Every once in a while, 
or the next night on Raw or the, or the next Friday on SmackDown or at the very next pay-per-view. But the entire point of the Money in the Bank contract is to elevate the person holding it, which is why for such a long period of time, it was great that Daniel Bryan and The Miz when he originally won it, CM Punk, Edge, Rob Van Dam, why some of these people won the contract. But as of late, they've been giving it to people like Otis, Nikki Ash, The Miz for a second time. We'll get into that in a moment. Uh, Brock Lesnar, Braun Strowman, who not only don't need it, but shouldn't have it. That's the key. And they've really gone away from what Money in the Bank was used to be, not just in terms of who has won the contract, but in terms of how it's been cashed in. Since, I think, 2017, like, think about this, okay? So, the last five years, yes, I just counted on my hand, even though it's very easy to do that math. The last five years, which is not just 10 people who have held the contract, by the way, but I believe 12 people because uh, one of them changed hands and they had to do a second one for the women's one in, in 2017. Of all of those 12 um, Money in the Bank briefcase possessions, let's call it, only three have lasted longer than 70 days. And those were Carmella, the second time she won it in 2017, and Otis and The Miz, who each held it for 193 and 119 days, respectively. And the only reason that happened was because Otis never should have won it in the first place, and they had absolutely no idea what to do with him. And then when The Miz had it, again, it was a situation where like they knew they were going to use it to change the title for a specific reason, but they were kind of waiting for the opportunity to do it, and they eventually did. And the way they did it made sense. It took the title, I think it was um, off Drew McIntyre and put it on Bobby Lashley. Yeah, I think it was something like that. So they did it well. But every other time that this contract has been won and cashed in, let me read you literally the amount of time that these people have held it. Carmella had it for two days. Baron Corbin for 58. Alexa Bliss for two hours and 52 minutes cashed in at Money in the Bank. Braun Strowman, 70 days, but he pre-announced his cash in, I believe. Uh, Bailey, an hour and 25 minutes, another one at Money in the Bank. Brock Lesnar, 56 days, again, announced when he was going to cash it in. Asuka was given the championship because Becky Lynch was pregnant. We already mentioned Otis and The Miz. Nikki Ash, one day, cashed in the following night on Raw. And then Big E, 57 days, announced the cash-in for Raw. So they're just, the utilization of the Money in the Bank briefcase has been exceptionally poor as of late. So in terms of what we get at Money in the Bank, here's what I want. Number one, no cash-ins on the show. Number two, whoever does win the championships doesn't set a date that they're going to cash it in. I want a title match at SummerSlam or this SmackDown or whatever the case. They should use it. I don't care if they're baby faces or heels. They should use it in that surprise fashion. Win or lose, success or failure, main eventers winning the briefcases or mid-carters getting elevated winning the briefcases. Of course, I would prefer the mid-carters getting elevated to win the briefcases. But even if the main eventers win it, All of that stuff badly needs to get factored in because right now, the way they've been doing Money in the Bank over the last five years, they've bastardized it completely and it is just not working. So now that I've been able to say my piece finally for the first time, 
let's actually get into the breakdown of WWE Money in the Bank. The women's match is the what we will start with. On SmackDown last Friday, we had Shotzi against Tamina as a qualifier. Tamina replaced Aaliyah, who was apparently injured for real. Shotzi used her legs to choke Tamina over the ropes, but Tamina caught her with a super kick as she went flying. The referee counted to three, but Shotzi's foot touched and was under the bottom rope. Shotzi then avoided a charge into the ring post and hit a really rough DDT called Never Wake Up for the win in three minutes. Look, Shotzi was the right winner here, okay? And she will probably be the MVP of this match. Also, Tamina can only do so much in the ring these days. But this booking was pathetic. Shotzi needs to be gaining momentum and getting over. Having her survive a three-minute match purely by happenstance against Tamina, that ain't it. Over on Raw, we had Liv Morgan against Alexa Bliss. Backstage in Gorilla, Bliss put over Liv, saying she will be champion one day, just not Saturday. Morgan agreed they aren't friends, just friendly, because to quote Cena, Bliss's time is up and her time is now. Asuka joined commentary, which was kind of strange. I mean, Asuka's limited in English and they didn't really do a good job like feeding her opportunities to be funny, which is the whole point of having her on commentary. It was just weird the entire time. Bliss went for a DDT, but delayed the move as she taunted. So Liv countered into a heel hook pinning combination for the win in four minutes. Again, the time here was pathetic. They actually didn't work that well together in the ring. It was really rough. So if it was an eight or 10 minute match, maybe it just would have been a really rough eight or 10 minutes. But that shouldn't be the case because both of them are good in the ring. Morgan is improving massively all the time. Again, if you're going to do a match, men, women, important, not important, it should at least be six or seven minutes. I just don't understand these three or four minute matches. I know they want you to watch the pay-per-view, but we're not getting this match at Money in the Bank. We're getting them in a multi-woman match. Let them work. Let Liv get over going into the big show. And then the main event of Raw was a last chance qualifier, Becky Lynch versus Shayna Baszler versus Nikki Ash versus Dewdrop versus Xia Li versus Tamina. Conspicuous by their absences, uh, of course, were Aaliyah, who we would presume is still injured, Sonya Deville, who we would presume is not going to get a shot based on what Adam Pearce said to her, and uh, Dana Brooke, who we did not know why she wasn't there, but Dana actually explained on Twitter uh, right before we taped the show on Tuesday that she was in a serious car accident recently and, you know, hasn't been able to wrestle or, or do anything. So, of course, we wish her the best and hope she gets better. Now, despite there being six women in this match, five or six, I'm forgetting, um, six, I'm sorry, it was not a battle royal, but rather a six-woman elimination match where you could get taken out via pinfall, submission, disqualification, or countout. And the only reason I say countout is because there was a graphic on the screen that said as much, and I believe Jimmy Smith read that you could lose via pinfall submission, disqualification, or countout. But given there's no DQs in triple threats or fatal matches or anything like that, and it was tornado style where they were all in the ring at the same time, and there was only one referee, it just didn't make sense that you could lose via disqualification or countout. In fact, it was patently absurd. Now, 90 seconds after the graphic came up, Corey Graves said on commentary that you can't lose by countout. And then he repeated that after the commercial break. It was just an absolute mess in terms of the rules of the match. Now, in terms of the match itself, the women teamed up against Becky at the bell. She caught Zaya with the manhandle slam for the first elimination in two minutes. Lynch then countered Nikki 
she tried to roll up into the disarm her for the second elimination. There was a great spot with all the women crashing into the barricade outside. Dewdrop was then the base of a super duperplex. Baszler had Tamina in a heel hook, so Dewdrop nailed her with a running splash for the pinfall. Tamina hit Lynch with a Samoan drop. She ended up dodging a splash, only to eat a running senton from Dewdrop at ringside. Dewdrop hit a Vader bomb style elbow on Tamina to get the fall, and that advanced her to the final two, with each her and Lynch having two eliminations to that point. She tried to do the same move on Becky, but Lynch avoided it. Then Becky failed trying a manhandle slam in the ring. She didn't have any momentum. Uh, Dewdrop put her up on the top rope to do like some type of avalanche move. And instead, Becky changed things, turned things around and took Dewdrop off the second rope with an avalanche manhandle slam for the win. This match got 13 minutes and it sure, it was sloppy in parts. It also had banger parts as well. The finish with Dewdrop and Lynch was outstanding. And it was one of the best wrestling moments on the entire show. Becky was the obvious winner. She had to be the final entrant in the match. My one little issue, and it's not really anyone's fault, is this match actually ran past 11 p.m. So we didn't get a celebration or any really post-match storyline like we normally do on Raw. Shit happens again. It was really no one's fault. Becky Lynch actually ended up cutting a promo for the live audience after Raw went off the air. Unfortunately, I did not cut it for the show. That is my fault but do not worry. Um, you can, of course, find it on Twitter. And maybe what I'll do is before I even publish the show, I will retweet it. That way you guys can easily check it out. Nevertheless, super entertaining match and the right winner in Becky Lynch. So that brings us to the women's Money in the Bank match at the apropos named Money in the Bank premium live event. Lacey Evans, Alexa Bliss, Liv Morgan, Raquel Rodriguez, Asuka, Shotzi, and Becky Lynch, those are the women making up this match. And I have to say, this is a extremely strong women's match. When you consider the women in this company who are not available right now, Charlotte Flair, Bailey, Rhea Ripley, of course, Bianca Belair and Ronda Rousey, uh, Natalia and Carmella are all in the championship matches. Uh, Sasha Banks and Naomi walked out. They're still not back. And you look at how strong this match is from a talent standpoint, That really goes to show you the depth of the women's division, not just right now in terms of what's on the main roster, but there are so many other women that can still come up and there are women who were not used for this match. So I am very, very high on the match quality of this. I think this actually has a chance to steal the entire show and be the match of the night. Now, in terms of a prediction, I think you guys, long-term listeners know, the way we break down matches like this is we first take people away who either don't need to win or just definitely are not going to win the match. And there's three off the top of my head that I think we can just cut out or four maybe even that we can cut out. And those are Alexa Bliss, who just doesn't really have much momentum right now. Raquel Rodriguez, who doesn't need to win Money in the Bank to get championship matches. She's big and strong. She's already showed out against Ronda Rousey. Asuka, who just recently won, first of all, And second of all, just doesn't really make sense as someone to win the briefcase again. And Shotzi, who despite them getting behind her a little bit recently, it would be quite an elevation for them to go from her not being on TV at all, like a month and a half ago, to suddenly holding the women's money in the bank briefcase. So that brings me down to a final three of Lacey Evans, Liv Morgan, and Becky Lynch. And there are cases to be made for all three of them. Lacey Evans clearly... WWE wants to make her into the new female John Cena. 
there's still confusion as far as I'm concerned on if she is supposed to be a pure baby face, a tweener, someone who makes you think that they're a face and then becomes a heel. I don't exactly know what they're doing with Lacey Evans. The reintroduction of her, because it stalled and started and stopped so many different times, it was just rough and it has not been executed well. I think the original intention was for Lacey to win this match. That is what I believe to be the case. Now, I have made my case for probably two or three years at this point, but I know I said it last year, that Liv Morgan needs to win the Money in the Bank briefcase. The fans are in love with her. She has improved massively both in the ring and on the mic. And she is the one woman out of this group, in my opinion, where if you're going to say, who should be the next women's champion who has not yet held the title? Liv Morgan is that person. Raquel Rodriguez will absolutely get there. I'm sure Lacey Evans will get there as well. But Liv Morgan right now is the most ready woman in the mid card across Raw and SmackDown to be elevated into main event championship title holder status. And then of course, there's Becky Lynch, who has been going through this downward spiral storyline. We seem to know that the plans for WWE right now are for Lynch and Ronda Rousey to fight at WrestleMania next year. WrestleMania 39 in Los Angeles, it makes all the sense in the world. Do they use the Money in the Bank briefcase as the vehicle to get her there? Does she win the briefcase as a heel, cash it in on Rousey, and then they do this at WrestleMania and they have Rousey win the title? Or is the big moment at WrestleMania Lynch having turned babyface winning the title off maybe a tweener or maybe a heel Rousey. I just don't know the answer to that. It feels like with nine months to go until WrestleMania, there is no necessity for Becky Lynch to win the Money in the Bank briefcase, despite the idea of Lynch and Rollins holding both briefcases simultaneously being extremely attractive. There's two reasons why I do not think that's going to happen. Number one, Both of them have indicated in interviews coming out of them doing that boyfriend-girlfriend angle, you know, a year or two years ago, I guess it was at this point, that they really didn't want to do that again. And if you have both of them as Money in the Bank holders and they're both on Raw and their characters are already pretty similar, to not have them interact and do that angle again would not make any sense. You would almost have to do that. But the other thing is everything WWE does these days is about making both Fox and USA Network happy. So in my opinion, it seems like they probably need to have one SmackDown person win a briefcase and one Raw person win a briefcase. They could easily get around that by having two Raw people win and one of them cash it in on a SmackDown champion. Um, Of course, for the men, it's an undisputed championship. So that person winning and appearing more frequently on SmackDown, that can easily happen against Roman Reigns. But still, it feels like they probably want to split the winners. So again, the final three... Lacey Evans, Liv Morgan, and Becky Lynch. You guys know where the Silver King's heart is. My heart is with Liv Morgan. Unfortunately, despite me trying to will this into existence and make it happen in the universe, my head does not align with where my heart is. I do want to clarify. I think the right creative decision and the right booking is also for Liv Morgan. So They align in that manner in which if I was on the creative team and I was able to book this match, I would put Liv Morgan over and I would have her win. It makes the most sense. 
but it's not what I'm projecting WWE's team to do. I do believe it'll come down to Lacey Evans and Becky Lynch, and it makes more sense to me to continue Becky's downward spiral angle and have WWE make the attempt of turning Lacey Evans into this character they want her to be. Again, there's nine months still until WrestleMania by having Lacey come out on top here with the Money in the Bank briefcase instead of going with Morgan, who would be my choice, or Lynch, who I don't think anyone would disagree with winning the briefcase. So my pick, as much as I don't want it to be true, I don't think it'll be the worst thing in the world, but as much as I don't want it to be true, my pick is Lacey Evans winning Women's Money in the Bank. And Chris Vanini, he agrees. He is also picking Lacey Evans, I presume for many of the same reasons that I just laid out. So now let's move over to the men's Money in the Bank. And unfortunately, maybe the worst thing that happened on WWE television this past week, uh, in, it involved the men's Money in the Bank. So McIntyre opened SmackDown saying, no matter what he does in the ring, Roman Reigns keeps ducking him. So he said, I need to win Money in the Bank and get my title match. He mentioned Brock Lesnar getting a title shot right away. And some fans actually booed that, which I liked. McIntyre said he hopes they destroy each other so we can just claim more of the winner and take the title at SummerSlam. Sheamus agreed with Drew's plan, but he said he would be the one to win the titles because he's previously won Money in the Bank and cashed it in successfully against Reigns. Now, before we continue here, let me point out, McIntyre literally said on SmackDown a few weeks ago that I am going to fight Roman Reigns for the undisputed WWE Universal Championship at Clash at the Castle. Now, a listener named Michael, he sent me some video where Drew said it was his quote-unquote goal to be in that match. But that's not what we heard him say clearly on TV. Now, maybe he screwed up his promo. But now, what they're basically telling us is after expecting McIntyre Reigns as the main event booked for that show, with the only way it changes if Lesnar wins the title, McIntyre-Lesnar. Instead of us now being able to expect that, now he's saying, I need to win a match to get a match that we already know is going to happen. Now, maybe they make it a triple threat with Sheamus, but this is just one of those unforced continuity errors that WWE commits so often. But it got worse from here. Because Paul Heyman comes out with Adam Pearce by his side. Heyman promised that Reigns would beat Lesnar, but he admitted he would be vulnerable to a cash-in at the end of their match. He said it, therefore, is his job to ensure it will not happen again. Pearce said he was hasty inserting McIntyre and Sheamus into the Money in the Bank match because due to Heyman's influence, he has been overruled by WWE. And suddenly, neither McIntyre nor Sheamus are officially qualified for Money in the Bank. However, if they want to get into the match, they can qualify if they defeat the Usos in the main event of SmackDown, a match that would not qualify the Usos, nor would the titles be on the line, nor would a win result in a championship opportunity for McIntyre and Sheamus. Then later in the show, McIntyre and Sheamus argued backstage. So as if the first part of this was not stupid enough. They gave us a completely convoluted piece of nonsense for the main event. They took two qualifications away, even though it was obvious McIntyre and Sheamus would win them back. And then they gave us 
a stupid can they coexist match for no reason whatsoever. And credit to WWE because they've largely avoided the can they coexist matches recently, but they gave us one here for no reason. So all they really accomplished was giving the undisputed tag team champions a loss in a non-title match to a couple of single stars eight days before these guys actually defend the championships. It was just plainly idiotic creative. And there is no way that anyone can defend this. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Point zero. So let's just get to the match. The profits were on commentary. It was, again, a can they coexist mode booking from the very beginning. Sheamus mocked the Claymore. They fought each other outside before getting knocked down with a tope suicida. Sheamus was taking a beating when he countered an Uso charge with a pump knee and hit Drew with the hot tag. He ate stereo super kicks and an Uso splash for a broken fall. Sami Zayn then ran and interfered from outside only to get his ass pounced by Dawkins. Butch and Ridge Holland came down basically for no reason. The Prophets and Usos jawed at ringside when McIntyre hit an awesome tope cannonball. Sheamus caught Jay with a bro kick outside, but Jimmy countered the Claymore with a super kick inside only for McIntyre to run the ropes and hit the Claymore for the win. They celebrated together and that was it. The main event segment, don't get me wrong, it was super entertaining. But first of all, as you can tell the way I broke it down, it was overbooked and it was an absolute waste of time given we were right back where we started at the beginning of the show for no reason whatsoever. All the Usos have been doing recently is taking singles and tag team losses. They lost as a team to the Street Profits. They lost as a team now to McIntyre and Sheamus. Jay has lost to both Street Profits individually. And I know Jimmy had a match, but I forgot if he won or lost it. So, you know, whatever. But so even if they had one win, that's like a one and six record over the last month, which again, for undisputed tag team champions, does not make a shred of sense. But nevertheless, McIntyre and Sheamus are into the Money in the Bank match for a second time. Later on SmackDown, or actually I should say earlier on SmackDown, we had a planned qualifying match, Sami Zayn against Shinsuke Nakamura. Zayn was excited to learn McIntyre and Sheamus may not be in the match. Then he dedicated this match to Reigns and said if he won the briefcase, he would do so to protect Reigns. He would not cash it in on him. Nakamura got chance before being dumped over the ropes outside. There were a lot of 2.8 and 2.9 counts to my surprise, including one off a Mishinoku driver. Zayn avoided Kinshasa, but got caught using the ropes on a roll-up. Nakamura then caught him from behind with a flying knee for another close near fall. Then he hit Kinshasa at ringside and struggled to get him into the ring. But once he did, Zayn hit a haluva kick out of nowhere for the win in 10 minutes. This was a really good wrestling match. 3.5 stars and a B. The booking was tough though. Like Nakamura has a reason to be going after the briefcase, trying to get a match with Reigns. Zayn, I will say though, he adds a really fun element to the match given he's an honorary member of the bloodline. And he's also more likely to be involved in high-risk big spots than Nakamura. Really, both of them should be in the match. And that's an entirely different problem that we've discussed previously, but we're going to get to that a little bit later. Uh, so later backstage, Zayn stopped a Heyman interview because Kayla Braxton had been an unfair journalist, he claimed. Sammy said that he would never cash in against Reigns. So Heyman put his arm around him to kind of hug him. Then he said he would cash in against Lesnar and Heyman removed his arm and stared Zayn down. At first, I thought Heyman was just being protective of Lesnar, but then I realized the insinuation 
that he would cash in on Lesnar was that Lesnar would have to beat Reigns for the championship. Anyway, this was a great little one-on-one between two of the best actors in WWE. Heyman and Zayn, they've been nailing it recently. So we move over to Raw, where we had a last chance battle royal qualifier. Raw and SmackDown superstars were both in this. Notable names included Riddle, Ricochet, Nakamura, AJ Styles, Rey Mysterio, and Mustafa Ali. I'd say there were about 16 people in the ring. Styles eliminated Champa. Mysterio got eliminated by Miz and Ziggler. Ricochet landed on a ladder when he got thrown off the apron. And then he took T-Bar off the apron with a hurricanrana while holding onto the ropes. Miz sold an injured knee on an axe hammer from the top rope. Nakamura eliminated Ziggler, leaving him, Riddle, Ricochet, and Styles with Miz also still legal, having rolled outside. Riddle got Shinsuke. Styles caught Ricochet flying. He and Riddle got everyone standing on their feet. Uh, Miz played possum ringside. And when Styles jumped on the apron to hit the phenomenal forearm, which by the way, was really stupid in a battle royal, Miz pulled his legs out from under him, eliminating Styles. Riddle then got caught with skull-crushing finale. But as Miz ran at him to kind of clothesline him over the ropes, he caught Miz running at him with his legs and they both landed on the ring apron. Miz then ran at Riddle once again to knock him off, but got caught with an RKO on the apron and Riddle just pushed him off to emerge victorious. And then later Riddle celebrated backstage. It was an unremarkable match with a strong finish though. And obviously the right winner, we talked about Riddle needing to be in Money in the Bank. I liked the booking to continue the Styles-Miz feud while letting Riddle get over a heel who draws a really big reaction in The Miz. To call this last chance though, it probably should have been on SmackDown. Now, as I said earlier in the show, maybe this got moved because Owens and Zeke got canceled. Whether they do that match on SmackDown or whether they do another qualifier on SmackDown, I don't know, but there is still one spot open in this match. As I noted, WWE announced after this match was over that Owens and Zeke had been pushed. So we don't know who the last person in Money in the Bank is gonna be, but clearly there are still a number of really strong competitors. The problem is they called this a last chance battle royal qualifier and already had Ricochet, Nakamura, Styles, Mysterio, a lot of people who you would probably want to be in the Money in the Bank match, they already kind of got their last chance. So again, we'll see what happens with Zeke and Owens if they do that on Friday. I'm not exactly sure who they are gonna put into that last spot. There's some speculation that maybe they hold it and it's Cody, You know, even though we can't wrestle, we talked about earlier what Cody theoretically could do. Uh, he could come in and just ruin Rollins' day, hit him with a steel chair, pull his leg out you know, to knock him off the ladder, push the ladder over, uh, take him out outside by throwing him into the steps. They theoretically could do something like that. That would, again, just be such a bastardization of the Money in the Bank concept, very similar to what they did when Brock Lesnar entered at the very end of the match when Mustafa Ali was on top of the ladder. And we all got really excited. Oh my God, they're gonna give Ali the contract. And then Lesnar comes in and wins. And yes, the Brock party was great, but in the moment we rolled our eyes and it was ridiculous for him to have the briefcase, even if he was entertaining with it, blah, blah, blah. I don't need to go into a whole diatribe of all the issues with that particular money in the bank. But you get my point. So we move into the men's money in the bank match for the show. And here are the qualifiers. Seth Rollins, Drew McIntyre, Sheamus, Omos, Sami Zayn, Riddle, and one person to be determined. Now, I will admit that business has picked up for this match a little bit as we've moved on because Sami Zayn and Riddle are two fantastic additions. But the problem that we still have here, and again, on this podcast, we are huge fans, as you heard earlier, 
of big meaty men slapping me. Big meaty men slapping me. <laughs> we like when there's beef flying around in the ring. And in this match, we do need to note, there's going to be a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. But sometimes for certain matches, beef is not the best recipe. And for Money in the Bank, having a bunch of big dudes takes away from the fact that it's a ladder match. And we want to see people jumping and flying and taking crazy spots. Omos being in this match is truly a travesty. Now, pretty clearly what's going to happen is someone, Rollins, Riddle, maybe someone else, is going to wind up sitting on his shoulders or jumping off his shoulders, something like that, or he's he's only going to get like half the way up a ladder and he's still going to be able to touch the briefcase. Like something like that will happen. There's planned spots for Omos, I am quite sure. Maybe he even takes a huge bump into some ladders positioned outside. That would be the best possible usage of him to just knock him out cold. That'd be great. But he should not be in this match. Drew individually being here, no issue whatsoever. Drew and Sheamus, it just kind of feels like it's two guys who don't need this match given their career resumes to this point. And you could make an argument, well, Silver King Seth Rollins doesn't either. True, but unlike Drew McIntyre, Seth Rollins is on a very long losing streak. And Sheamus has been stuck in, you know, brawling brutes, New Day purgatory for the better part of the last three months. So given all of the people who are not just not in this match, but not on the pay-per-view and could be, again, Ricochet, AJ Styles, Mustafa Ali, these are easy, no-brainer people to have in a ladder match. And I do hope that by the time Friday rolls around, Ricochet is that person who takes the last spot because they need a true high flyer to do crazy shit. You want to talk about someone jumping off Omasa's shoulders? Ricochet jumping off Omasa's shoulders would be a sight. So I truly hope that's what they end up doing. But clearly, given the fact that Owens or Ezekiel was originally planned to be in this match, I have to assume that one of them, maybe Zeke, takes that final spot. Regardless. We got to get into prediction mode here for the men. And again, just like the women, we're going to do it by process of elimination. So Omas is not winning. I think we all can agree. Sheamus is not winning. Same thing. And whoever is not currently announced for Money in the Bank probably is not winning either. That brings us down to a final four of Seth Rollins, Drew McIntyre, Sami Zayn, and Riddle. Sami winning would be extremely interesting and would create an awesome dynamic with the bloodline, Sammy turning face, all that stuff. People could really get behind Sami Zayn. The problem is in WWE, people generally get typecast. And I think they love what he's doing right now in this heel gimmick. Beyond that, he's on the older side. And there's really not a scenario where it makes a lot of sense right now for Sami Zayn to be in a position where he gets elevated by something like a Money in the Bank or a Royal Rumble. That's something that probably should have already happened for him. At this point, he can still challenge for world titles and be an upper mid-carder and a main eventer, but a vehicle like this for him doesn't really make a lot of sense. So that really brings us to a final three of Rollins, McIntyre, and Riddle. And maybe this is 
my heart speaking more than my brain, but it just really doesn't make sense for Drew McIntyre to win this. Again, this is a guy who can easily get a challenge or should be able to easily get a challenge with Reigns at Clash at the Castle. All he needs to do is come out and say, Roman, you don't show up anymore. Your ass has been ducking me and attack him or challenge him face-to-face in the ring and take a beat down and it leads to a match. It's easy, simple booking 101. You don't really need to create a money in the bank win for McIntyre just so we can get a scheduled match for Clash of the Castle against Roman Reigns. It would really be mind-numbing to do it. So that to me brings it back down to Seth Rollins and Riddle. For Riddle, there was a stipulation or they announced it at least one time that if Riddle lost to Roman Reigns in the championship match that he had a couple of weeks ago, not that he wouldn't get another title match, but he would no longer be allowed to show up on SmackDown, which on its own face was stupid. And they never repeated that stipulation. Very similar to how I mentioned earlier in the show that the Street Profits and Usos had a match for someone to pick a stipulation for their match at Money in the Bank. And not only was the stipulation not announced on Raw, they did not promote SmackDown by saying the Street Profits will choose the stipulation on SmackDown. It makes me think that there isn't going to be a stipulation for that match. And it also makes me think here, and again, this is just continuity issues with WWE. It makes me think there probably isn't something in the cards where Riddle can't fight Roman Reigns again. But for Riddle to already have that moment with Reigns one-on-one and for Randy Orton to be out of action for a really long period of time where Orton probably could not aid him in a cash-in on Reigns, if they had Riddle win the Money in the Bank briefcase, I just think it would be unsuccessfully cashed in. And that's my biggest concern with Riddle winning. That leaves us with Seth Rollins, who I have said already on this podcast, and we've mentioned it previously, WWE is beating us over the head with the idea of Rollins winning the briefcase and repeating history. Whether it's heist of the century at SummerSlam, or whether it's Rollins cashing in and winning the title elsewhere, they're just nailing us over the head with it. Rollins is saying it. Cena is saying it. Cody is saying it. And it feels to me, I mean, that's either a complete diversion and they're going to go in a totally different direction with McIntyre or Riddle, or they're just going to do it. And it sucks that they beat us over the head with it where we now expect it rather than allowing it to play out naturally and have us get super excited that they actually went ahead and did something like that. But in the end, we do need to make a pick. And because he's been on such a downward spiral, Because Cody is out of action for the foreseeable future, it's not going to be nine months, but it's probably at least until December or January at this point. And Rollins has this losing streak and and he really is the number two guy in the company and needs to be back near the top of the main event picture. I do have Rollins winning the Money in the Bank briefcase. And I believe that there's some really interesting booking they can do. They can have him attempt cash-ins and Cody stop him. They can have him cash-in and maybe win one title off Roman Reigns, or maybe even both titles off Roman Reigns. And instead of Cody Rhodes winning the Royal Rumble and facing Reigns at WrestleMania 39, which of course would make a lot of sense, he may face Seth Rollins, the champion at WrestleMania 39, if we have Roman Reigns fight The Rock. As we expect, that match, of course, would not need to have any championships on the line. So, you know, we can get into all the different booking ideas once the winners are actually crowned. But 
Rollins winning out of the group here does make the most sense. As a character, he will be able to carry it the best. Riddle would be second best in that regard. But it just feels like all the momentum is here for Rollins to win. And I don't think they're swerving us. I just really think they're spoiling the surprise as they did with Big E's cash-in, as they have done with numerous other things surrounding Money in the Bank. It's frustrating. It's annoying. But WWE continues to do it. I should also mention, of course, that Chris Vanini's grade as well, or his prediction, I should say, as well, is Seth Rollins winning this match. Again, what's most important to me is that no one cashes in on this show. Obviously, the men's winner can't cash in, and therefore, it most likely will be the main event of the show. But the women's winner cannot cash in. I mentioned the timeline for the women, or for the women and men for the money in the bank. It is even worse for the women. Only one woman ever has held the title for a decent period of time. All the other ones have either been cashed in at Money in the Bank right away or on Raw the next night. And it's just incredibly frustrating that the Money in the Bank briefcase over the last five years has not been used for its intended purpose. I really hope they fix that. It is a great storyline, great creative element for WWE, these briefcases. And it is something that adds legitimate excitement to the television programs and the live events, the premium live events, because you have that threat, that surprise cash-in threat, the unexpected moment, the thrilling thing that gets people into crowds for Raw and SmackDown and pay-per-views because they want to experience that euphoria that they get for a heist of the century or for a Dolph Ziggler cash-in. You don't get it when it's just not only predictable, when it's scheduled, or when you get rid of the briefcase before you're able to add or build any hyper-momentum for that eventual moment. So please, I don't necessarily care if my predicted winners are right. I hope WWE heeds that advice from the Silver King. Before we get to the pre-show expectation grade, I did want to double back on a DM I received from Timothy Hernandez at Tim HZZ. I believe first time... Uh, I would say caller, but first time writer in, first time author uh, for us. Tim, welcome to the show. He said, isn't the worst case scenario for the men's money in the bank match that Drew McIntyre wins and then announces he will cash in at Clash at the Castle, then loses to Roman? That has to be why they are mentioning the 85% success rate. Then WWE can say that Roman has beat the odds once again. Well, the worst case scenario is Omas winning. That's just the worst case scenario. But this would probably be the second worst case scenario for a number of reasons. Like McIntyre, as we already stated, doesn't need to win to get a title match. It takes the threat of the surprise cash-in off the table, which is one of the drawing elements of the gimmick that we just discussed. And the briefcase would not only be marginalized with that booking, but it would then be completely out of commission after less than three months. Not to mention the fact that in your booking, McIntyre loses. It would be one thing if he did that and won the championships or won one of the championships. So if he loses and all that happens, then they're taking a good gimmick and they're just completely wasting it, especially when they had an opportunity with Money in the Bank to take one or both the titles offering. So yes, I do agree. That is maybe not the worst case scenario as you stated it, but for me, the second worst case scenario. And I did not give that, by the way, for the women's match, which we used to do. Uh, I think because Chris wasn't on the show, I kind of forgot to say, hey, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? We usually do that for the Royal Rumble and Money in the Bank. So let me double back 
really quick with the women and kind of give you the worst case scenario there. That would probably be any of them, but like maybe live more. The worst case scenario is Liv Morgan winning money in the bank, cashing it in that night on Ronda Rousey and losing because they would get our hopes up with Liv winning the briefcase. They wouldn't allow it to exist beyond the single night of money in the bank. And then she would lose her cash into Rousey. So it would just kind of rebury her after all this time where she's been getting elevated. That would probably be the worst case scenario for the women, the worst winner individually for the women. You know, I mean, I don't love Lacey Evans winning it, I gotta tell you, but like right now, Alexa Bliss has no momentum. If she won it, I think it would work. And they, if it was a long time that she held the briefcase, they could get the fans even more behind her than they already are and build her back up and make her a real credible threat again. But she's not that right now. And I don't know that she needs the briefcase. So the the worst case scenarios for the women are really more about whether the cash-in is successful and how quickly it's cashed in rather than who actually wins. Because really, any of these women winning, it's there's not really a problem with it. But for the men, Omas winning would be a bad case. And obviously the McIntyre scenario that you laid out would be a bad case. It would crush me if Morgan won this, cashed in after the Natalia match and lost to Rousey. Like, it would kill me. It, it might kill me. So um, that would be my worst case scenario. That's the best way I can put it. So that's the breakdown of all the matches with predictions for Money in the Bank. The last thing is a pre-show grade. Uh, you know, I always let Chris go first here when he gives the grade, but he's not on the show. So I'm gonna go first this time and then I'll give you his grade after. Spoiler alert, they're exactly the same. The problem with this card is number one, it's short. And number two is very predictable. I think our predictions that we've laid out are all going to happen. Just like I batted a thousand for AEW and JPW Forbidden Door this past Sunday, I really do think the same thing is gonna happen here for Money in the Bank. And that's not a humble brag. It's not a Barry Horowitz pat on the back. It's just sometimes predictable things are good. And sometimes you want a lack of predictability. And when it comes to some WWE major events, I don't necessarily want to know, or I don't want to think I know who is going to win every single match. Again, there's four title matches on the card. We're only predicting one change. Neither of the women's matches is likely going to be that good. The the United States match, Theory and Lashley, I think it could be, be a little bit of a banger, but Theory is going to be a chicken shit heel. So again, I don't know how great it's going to be. The tag team match has will probably be the best championship match on the entire show, and it's not going to have a title change. And then again, you have the two Money in the Bank matches. The women's one looks very strong. Very excited about the women's match. The men, the way it's been built in terms of who's participating, not overly that enthusiastic. So I can't go into an A range as an expectation grade leading in, and I don't even feel good enough to give it a B plus. So I'm a flat B as a pre-show expectation grade. And again, vintage Chris Vanini is the exact same. He is at a B as well. All of you, our listeners, you will be able to give us your pre-show expectation grades on Saturday before Money in the Bank at 7 p.m. Eastern. We will post a poll to our Twitter account. You guys will be able to vote A, B, C, D, or F, what you expect from Money in the Bank. We will post another uh, poll as soon as the show goes off the air so you can give us your post-show grade as well. Between those two things happening, though, we, of course, will have our live WWE Money in the Bank pre-show, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Twitter Spaces. Of course, you're going to have the Money in the Bank pay-per-view, 
And then after the pay-per-view premium live event, whatever the hell you want to call it, after the poll, we will have our WWE Money in the Bank Instant Analysis Podcast coming Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. And yes, Riddle, you can finally say it. Isn't this the Money in the Bank edition? This was indeed the Money in the Bank edition, and that will be the Money in the Bank Instant Analysis edition of the podcast as well. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast so you know when those polls when when those polls drop, when the live show begins, and when the instant analysis is published, which will be as soon as Money in the Bank goes off the air. Also, please do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast now and forever. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show and why you subscribe. Hopefully we can grow our download base, our subscriber base. And if you leave those written five-star reviews, a reminder, we will read them here on the podcast. So please, please, please leave those five-star reviews. I appreciate all of you listening to this show as the Silver King ran solo today. We will be back on Thursday for the AEW NXT show. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Saturday, all the Money in the Bank goodness, the pre-show on Twitter spaces, the instant analysis. Do not miss that. So thank you all for listening. For Vintage Chris Vanini, who will join us again on Saturday. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, leaving you with three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.